Hey everyone, Derek here from Conspirituality. I didn't grow up in a very culinary family, but my Eastern European roots did afford me the ability to cook a pretty good chicken paprikash. It's actually one of the few meals from my upbringing that I was very fond of. And I like to prep all of my food in advance, usually hours before, so that way when I get down to cooking, it's all ready for me. In fact, I used all of the chicken in my last shipment of ButcherBox to cook chicken paprikash. It is definitely a favorite here. ButcherBox really allows you to have everything on hand so that when you are ready to make your meal, you pop out of the freezer, give it a day, and you're ready to go. Right now, ButcherBox is offering Conspirituality listeners your choice of a weeknight meal must-have for free in every order for a whole year. So that's either three pounds of chicken thighs, two pounds of ground beef, or a pound of steak tips. Plus, you'll get $20 off your first order. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash conspirituality and use code conspirituality to choose your free offer and get $20 off. If you're a fan of workplace comedies like The Office or satire like The Onion, then I have a podcast that I know you'll love. It's called Mega. Mega is an improvised satire from the staff of a fictional mega church. That's the premise. Each week, the hosts, Holly Laurent and Greg Hess, are joined by guests, people like Cecily Strong or Jen Hatmaker, to portray characters inside the colorful world of Twin Hills Community Church, which they describe as a mega church with a tiny family feel. The result is a sharp-witted and hilarious look into the world of commercialized religion using humor to cope with the frightening amount of power that church and religion have. So I very much recommend you checking out Mega's episodes, like the one with Saturday Night Live's Cecily Strong, playing Cece String, a hilarious character who's fresh out of jail, uh, and also comedian Jason Mansukas. You may find yourself dying of laughter and perhaps inspired to take an improv class yourself. Mega is able to keep you laughing as you think and reflect about the world we live in. You can find Mega on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Do you want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on. Of course you do. The average podcast listener has six shows in rotation, so you're most likely not just listening to Conspirituality. And that's totally okay. I'd love to share a podcast to add to your list. The Jordan Harbinger Show is a top-shelf podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, so don't just ignore my suggestion to listen to this one like you probably do with your other friends who tell you to listen to podcasts. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes to scientists, political activists, mobsters, even hostage negotiators. And Harbinger has an undeniable talent for getting his guests to share never-before-heard stories and thought-provoking insights. Without fail, he pulls out tactical bits of wisdom in each episode, all with the noble cause to make you more informed, a critical thinker, and to better operate. 
in today's world. I was on his show. In preparation, I listened to a bunch of episodes. He's just really good at what he does. Like episode 880 features Ian Bremmer, you know, the top-notch political scientist. And the topic is dealing with the world in disarray. But then you have episodes like his skeptical Sunday format. Episode 882 looked at homeopathy. But he has other episodes on Ayurveda and also the popular pseudoscience of analyzing body language. There isn't a better podcast to listen to casually or seriously to expand your worldview. He's also got a strangely relatable weekly segment called Feedback Friday, where Jordan covers advice on everything from escaping a cult or a psycho family situation to relationships and networking and even to asking for a raise. So point blank, Jordan Harbinger is smart, funny, he's easy to listen to. You'll be pressed to find an episode without excellent conversation, a few laughs, and even actionable advice that you can directly use to improve your life. You can't go wrong with adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. The podcasts. Hello, everybody. Welcome to a Conspirituality Podcast Brief. My name is Matthew Remsky, and today we have a short and sharp interview with Alexi Mostros, the lead investigator for the excellent podcast series Hoaxed by Tortoise Media. Hoaxed covers a central event in the origin story of QAnon but also tells us a lot about the world from which the main explicator of conspirituality came. This would be Charlotte Ward, also known as Jackie Farmer. I open my discussion with Alexi with a summary of the story. Remember that you can find Derek, Julian, and I on Twitter, and that you can access hundreds of hours of bonus materials, including live stream discussions, at Patreon slash Conspirituality. <laughs> Listeners, we're going to insist that you binge hoaxed uh, while I also yell spoiler alert for this episode uh, because I'm sitting down with the lead investigator of this docuseries and we're going to jump in at the deep end after I give a little bit of a 101 overview. Hoaxed covers the last and most significant satanic panic fever dream in the English-speaking world. This is the Hampstead hoax. And I think it's crucial to understand this cursed story because its viral success went on to influence Pizzagate and then QAnon. And it starts in 2014 when a Russian-born Bikram yoga teacher and vegan named Ella Draper, in the throes of a bitter custody battle with her second British husband, claimed that he was physically and sexually abusing their two children as the leader of a satanic pedophile cult. And Draper was aided in her storytelling by her new partner, Abraham Christie, a charismatic vegan alternative medicine influencer specializing in hemp, who we go on to learn through the reporting in Hoaxed, left a trail of abused children and stepchildren in his wake. Now, the Met Police got involved when Draper's children gave a dramatic and abject statement, which they soon retracted, admitting that Draper and Christie had coerced them. Retraction aside, 
Draper and Christie's story was taken up by a tenacious and deranged cadre of extremely online conspiracy theorists who doxed over 170 Hampstead residents associated with the children's school, the local church, neighbors who had looked sideways at Ella, or people she had grudges against from years before. And the claim was that all of them were satanic pedophiles, and the armpits of the internet responded with incessant harassment of those she had targeted. And uh, there was one, at least one serious case of physical stalking. Now, the police did almost worse than nothing by allowing the original statements made by the children to be released. But a high court judge eventually jailed two of the conspiracy mongers, determining that if anyone had abused the children, it was Draper and Christie, The justice actually used the word torture to describe how they forced the children into lying. Retraction aside, criminal convictions aside, the story still took off like wildfire throughout the conspiracy theory internet, spreading through David Icke's forum, seemingly validated by EU officials who gave one of the theorists a forum in Brussels uh, to eventually wind up on Infowars. One of the people who spread the Hampstead hoax with vigor from 2014 to 2015 was Jackie Farmer, the alias of the quasi-academic who coined the term that names our podcast. Her name is Charlotte Ward. Now, uh, we knew a bunch of this story before, but now we can all see it quite clearly due to the Herculean efforts of Alexei Mostros, host and lead investigator of Hoaxed by Tortoise Media, Welcome to Conspirituality Podcast. Thank you for taking the time. It's great to be here, Matthew. Thank you. And thanks for that really, really good summary of uh, the case. It's quite complex, so it's it's nice to to hear that sort of summary because a lot of people miss out details, but that was um, that had everything. Well, uh, thank you for that. I mean, you go into incredible detail in the actual series, but I'm glad that this 30,000 foot view uh, suits. I wanted to start by asking, did you come to this project with a working knowledge of the satanic panic circa the 1980s and 90s? Or was that a history that you had to catch up on? It was definitely something that I uh, had to catch up on. I I mean, I was aware of it. I'd heard the term uh, satanic panic before. Uh, but I didn't really know anything about it. I didn't know who it was targeting or where it came from or or indeed why uh, why it took place. So the, the the historical context around that sort of hoax was was quite new to me. But then going in the other direction, did were you also aware when you started that the hoax was seminal to the contemporary explosion of satanic panic related conspiracy theories beginning with Pizzagate and following through to QAnon? Well, kind of. So one of the things that interested me about the story from a relatively early stage was the, the timeline in the sense that this this hoax happened um, prior to Pizzagate, a few months before, uh, not too long before, and then prior to QAnon. So I was really interested to kind of dig into this this kind of Small, seemingly small British example of a satanic panic that, that seemed to predate these huge conspiracy movements that that are kind of still raging across the US. But what I didn't understand at the beginning, and, and I guess what I still don't totally understand is the relationship between the Hampstead hoax and, and Pizzagate and whether there was a causal link. And if, if, if there was, then, then what? 
you know, how, how strong that causal link is. I sense that the link isn't causal so much as uh, meme-related uh, in the sense that um, uh, you, you mentioned in the podcast that it makes it onto InfoWars. Uh, it is disseminated through uh, the David Icke network uh, as an example of some sort of proof that such things happen that uh what's happening at um uh at uh, planet ping pong is or what was it called <laughs> the pizza gate restaurant that was the uh, pizza shop yeah ping right. pong something yeah uh that that obviously if we wanted sort of recent evidence for the fact that such things actually occur then we just have to reach back a couple of years to hampstead um so i guess if it's not causal at least it it's sort of um, bolsters the epistemology of it kind of reinforced it yeah 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 now um the conspiracy inc crowd as you call them uh, picked up the hampstead hoax and they ran with it and they were able to do so in part because they had really efficient networks in place to encourage the viral spread of the story uh, tons of blogs lots of forum connections um, were you able to learn whether the hoaxers were also using uh, the Chan networks, 4chan, 8chan, 8kun, which then later uh, in 2018 directly gave rise to QAnon? There were examples of it. Um, I didn't do any sort of analysis to determine exactly how much content were, were, were on the Chan networks, but there were examples of it. And, and indeed, you know, I spoke to a an expert uh, who was studying uh, wellness conspiracy theories in um, uh, for, for for a university, and she had kind of got into these these networks of of wellness and anti anti COVID uh, vaccine conspiracy theorists. And she said within those networks as well, the the, the hamster conspiracy kind of was was popping up. So uh, most of the propagation that I was looking at in terms of the main uh, propagators of the of the hoax occurred on mainstream social media channels, uh, but there's quite a lot of evidence that that seeped into less prominent channels as, as well. Some of those prominent uh, actors, uh, Sabine McNeil and Belinda McKenzie, for example, um, very prolific, very ardent, uh, but they're also you know, middle-class, upper-class women in their 70s, I think, both of them. Uh, how, did you get a sense of how they became extremely online? Did they have adult sons at home with giving them tech help? Or how did that happen? Yeah, so, I mean, it's really interesting how kind of proportionally uh, many sort of middle-aged women there are in the conspiracy Inc. community, or at least the one I was looking at. Um so I, in terms of their internet savviness, Sabine McNeil has like a real, a really kind of almost um, impressive history in terms of uh, the internet. Uh, she was a, she was a kind of, I think she set up in, in London in the 80s, like some sort of like internet freedom network, kind of a precursor to WikiLeaks. And she was one of the first people to... I think she, she was written about at the time as one of the first people to be using the internet on any kind of um, consistent basis. So she, she, the fact that she is very internet savvy now doesn't surprise me given her history. I think with Belinda, I think 
she's less internet savvy, but you, it just goes to show that you don't need, you don't need much, um, to, um, propagate hoaxes through, through major channels, at least. Now, uh, another, um, very prolific spreader of the Hampstead hoax is somebody that you name dropped, I think in the second episode, uh, this is Jackie Farmer. And she goes on to become very important to us because we find out through Karen Irving's work primarily that, uh, she's also Charlotte Ward, who is trying to make a name for herself in, in academia, uh, with a somewhat laundered version of some of the ideology that she's promoting as Jackie Farmer. Now, how far did you look into her? So this is all really interesting to me because we had to pick and choose the conspiracy theorists to look into. And we knew that Jackie Farmer, Charlotte Ward, whatever her name is, was very significant, like one of the kind of the top five, I would say. But we we, we just didn't have the kind of narrative space to properly look into her. So I'm actually very interested to, to find out what, what you know about her um, because I don't, it, it's not, she's not someone that we focused on. Right. Well, um, she was listed at the time and still is as a, as an independent researcher. I believe she has a master's degree. Uh, she met uh, David Voas, who's a well-published uh, sociologist of religion, an American, um, at a conference, maybe in 2011, I think, is, is what we reported. And uh, from there... Uh, they struck up a relationship over this theme and he agreed to give a kind of academic gloss to uh, her ideas. Um, and then I think there were a number of things that he wasn't familiar with and that he let slide. So, for instance, the, the paper actually references David Icke as a, as a, as a reasonable, um, you know, sort of explicator of conspirituality, who's, who's actually claiming in, she's, she quotes him as claiming, you know, this isn't, um, you know, this isn't, this isn't about anti-Semitism at all. Um, and that's a spurious claim, or I don't know what the quote is, but then um, on her sort of public facing website outside of the academic setting, she says, and by the way, we got an academic journal to publish, uh, you know, the fact that, you know, conspirituality has nothing to do with anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. So she was very, very adept at playing both sides. Um, and, and, and really doing something that reminded me of, of, I think it's Sabine McNeil who was able to wind up, uh, at the EU, right? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, reaching for sources of sort of public validation from people that they would otherwise believe were trying to suppress the truth. That's the paradox, right? <laughs> Is that, you know, you, 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 there's, there's a desire for academic acclaim. There's a desire for political sort of validity, but at the same time, it's brokered with people that, um, you know, at the same time, uh, the conspiracy theorist is sort of beholden to not trust. It's very weird. Yeah, that's amazing. That's really interesting. Now, um, when you were looking at these virtual networks, um, you know, how would you? What else were they doing? Um, because what we've studied, uh, especially since the pandemic, is that um, new age yoga wellness social media spaces and, um, you know, affiliate networks were already involved in selling products, uh, usually many, many times in pyramid schemes or through MLM structures. Um, 
was was this was earlier, of course, and maybe some of that infrastructure isn't there. But um, you know, Farmer and Ward, uh, Draper and Christie are you know they would have had some sort of well oiled pipeline between um, you know satanic panic content and new age and wellness spaces. But um, do, could you characterize what kind of internet economy? Uh, this this story entered into like what what were they doing before i mean also other conspiracy theories but was there also money to be made uh and were they doing that before i think that the majority of money that they made was was through kind of fake campaigns so they'd set up like paypal addresses and gofundme pages and and tell their followers oh send us money because uh that'll that'll help us kind of uh, expose this cover-up and, and free uh, the, the children. And I think that they actually made quite a lot of money out of, out of that, not just uh, Draper and Christie, but, uh, but other people as well. Um, uh, in terms of the pipeline into kind of other branches of conspiracy, like wellness conspiracies, that, that's a really interesting one because um, Abraham Christie in particular was obsessed by the idea that um, by the idea of trauma-based mind control uh, and and the links between trauma-based mind control and processed or non-raw raw food and and his contention was that raw food and particularly raw hemp smoothies could free children uh, and adults from from trauma-based mind control and 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 he 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 was he obviously had like an economic interest in promoting that theory because he he sold hemp smoothies himself. But there was there was throughout this um, throughout this investigation the the main characters or, or lots of them have been uh, very interested in in wellness in raw food in hemp and cannabis in yoga, uh, in, in a, a, everything that kind of falls under the umbrella of kind of natural, natural remedies. This is a bit of a pivot, but you say that Christie was, um, you know, e- e- incentivized to have this view because he was selling hemp products. But also there's a psychological incentive in terms of, you know, if we want to talk about trauma-based mind control, that's what he perpetrated on the children, according to the reporting. Yeah, uh, and I'm wonder, I'm wondering if you had the sense that, well, you know, if if he was feeding the kids hemp at the same time that he was doing this thing that he's obsessed about, maybe it didn't count. Did did one thing sort of purify the other, or he thinks that the the kids were subjected to trauma based mind control by their abusers, by the Satanists. And that he was freeing them by giving them the cannabis smoothies. Now, obviously, the terrible irony is if anyone was subjecting the kids to trauma-based mind control, it wasn't. It was him. It was him. So this is what. Okay, so maybe, maybe, um, maybe I'll ask you to speculate. Do 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 you believe that he believed the story? Uh, I've been asking myself that a lot, and I think. I think deep down he doesn't believe it because I think he must have been there when it was made up. Um, 
But I think that also it's so tied up with his own personality and his own identity now that he, I would, I, I would be shocked if there was any point in his life when he recanted from, from those beliefs. Yeah, there is a key moment where um, in your phone call with him, which is kind of extraordinary, a uh, very high pressured thing to listen to um, yeah. that uh, he, he admits that he didn't know any of the people that wound up on Ella's list. Like she, she had, um, she had come up with those names uh, and he was willing to prosecute that list uh, without having known them. So yeah, that's, that's some evidence that, that he, he knows that something is coming from somewhere that he can't verify um, and he's willing to ride it anyway. But you also show, I mean, that he says that he loves her like he's loved no one else. And that's an interesting factor as well that perhaps, you know, he, he, if he was going to believe in something, it was going to be rooted in the strength of their, you know, their, their strange relationship. Yeah. You say repeatedly throughout the episodes that you're mystified as to why the Met didn't take action against Draper and Christie, especially after the high court had established the strong likelihood that they had abused the children. I don't even know if it's a likelihood. It's a, it's a, it's a statement that's, you know, it's determined. It's a, it's a, it's a fine, it's a finding uh, on, on the balance of probability. Yeah. 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 Um, so what do, what do you make of the neglect uh, on the, on the part of the police? I think that it's, it was a kind of, psychological consequence of, of realizing that it was a, it was that the underlying allegations weren't weren't true so they they were presented with these allegations and uh, of a satanic cult and then it quickly became obvious not least because the children retracted their story that it was all uh, it, 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 that there was no basis to it so kind of psychologically I can see that at that point you're thinking okay this is just a we shouldn't have even started looking at this. It, it, we, we checked it out. It's not true. Case closed. Moving on. Uh, but but I, I don't think that that's really good enough because um, even before the court case came out, the judgment came out, the kids were telling the police that they had been hit uh, and assaulted by Abraham. Um, and... Um, it wouldn't have taken much for the police to to then sort of try calling around a few people and establishing that Abraham had done that sort of thing before. They actually knew that he'd been violent to 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 children before at that point. So so they they came up with some very kind of spurious reason why they wouldn't investigate further, which was that the, the alleged violence happened in Morocco rather than the UK. Um, but you can see how wrong they were because by 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 what their spokesman said so after the court case came, after the judgment came out so in march 2015 so in so this timeline was in september 2014 they decided case closed the kids are lying we're not going to do anything then that allowed abraham and ella gave them space to flee the country in March 2015, the judge decided or, or ruled that the kids had most likely been uh, assaulted uh, by by Abraham, 
uh, in Morocco. And at that point, uh, you, you know, a reporter phoned up the police and the police said, oh, yeah, we have launched an investigation into potential child abuse offences. But nothing had changed. You know, what what the police knew in September 2014, they knew in March 20, 2015. So why did they decide to open the case in March and not four months before? And if they had opened the case four months before, then maybe Abraham wouldn't be in Morocco. Maybe he'd be in the UK right now. And in addition, it seems to be a case in which uh, the real fault line between in real life law enforcement and online awareness is exposed. You know, the the police seem to feel as though, uh, okay, physical evidence isn't present or it's going to be too difficult to to, uh, corroborate or we just don't have enough and we're going to wipe our hands. But really, there's a larger crime that's unfolding uh, seemingly outside of their jurisdiction and it becomes very almost ironic that somebody like Karen Irving is able to crack so many aspects of this case while the Met is kind of, you know, shaking their hands. Um, And so I'm wondering about this coordination between, you know, uh, real world accusations and physical evidence and the resources it takes for the Met to say, oh, actually, we let the cat out of the bag here by um, not issuing, I don't know what they could have done, issue some sort of strong statement about, you know, the, 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 you know, the statements were retracted by the children. Um, it feels like at this stage, uh, policing approach to the policing approach to the online aspects of this case is very naive. Yeah, I, th- I think that's, that's a fair criticism. I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I kind of tried to be a bit careful in totally damning the police because they don't have many resources and um and you know it's quite hard to appreciate how threatening an online hoax is going to be or or whether it's going to take off but certainly like after the first few weeks it was obvious that it wasn't going to go away and that people were getting death threats and it was kind of exploding all over the forums and people were organizing like on the ground protests in, in in and around Hampstead um, and and at that point, I think that there's an argument for to be made that the Met should say, okay, well, we do have laws against stalking and harassment and online harassment, and these are clearly being breached, and and we're a police force, and we need to do something about it. And what seems to have happened is that the, the evidence gathering process that should normally have been carried out by police officers was actually carried out by uh, a combination of a few parents who were victims. Uh, who, who, who were unfairly labelled as, as paedophiles, and and Karen Irving, the this mystery novelist from Canada, who kind of got involved um, almost by accident in the case, but then became a kind of central figure um, at, in in terms of kind of combating this tidal wave of misinformation that that was, you know, gathering strength all the time. Right. You know, to wind up. Um I, I don't have so much of a question for you as a as kind of a statement of awe for you to respond to. Um, you know, if it is true that with the Hampstead hoax, we really are talking about a prime catalyst for Pizzagate and QAnon. These are both outsized factors in the growth of the MAGA movement 
and really the transformation of global politics. I don't want to make too much of this, but if this is true, is it as, as astonishing to you as it is to me that it really has its roots in a bitter custody dispute exacerbated by online trolls? Yeah, I mean, I think it is It is astonishing um, because, you know, this, this story should not have been this story should never have been made public. It wasn't started in a, a Chan network. It wasn't started by a hoaxer. It was started by two people who had bitterly fallen out um, and who wanted to and who wanted to get back at each other. Um, um, but having said that, the subject of the hoax, the the, the pedophile element, the satanic element, the darkness of what was being alleged that that is something that has bubbled up kind of throughout history um, as far as I can see. And so it's a, I suppose it's a little bit like a really bad storm coming in from nowhere. Um, You know, it's surprising in one context because it's so unusual, Uh, but you know, every 15 years or every 20 years or there will be such a storm. Thank you so much for your time. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.